We began Romans chapter 8 a little after the beginning of Advent in December. Took a short break during the Christmas season and restarted this series, this great series on Romans by looking at the middle passage in Romans chapter 8 verses 12 through 17 last week and we pick it up this morning by looking at verses 18 through 27. As I've mentioned, Romans chapter 8, some consider not only the greatest chapter in the book of Romans, but some consider it the greatest chapter in the entire Bible. So it heeds our attention that was we look at it and study it and meditate on it and see how rich this book is for the people of God as the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote these words 2,000 years ago. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 27. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation, the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray, for we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. Jack Nicholson stars in the movie As Good As It Gets. And there's that one great scene where Jack Nicholson, with a spirit of sarcasm, sticks his head in the waiting room of a psychologist's office and sees all of the people sitting there and says... Have you guys ever considered that this is as good as it gets? Maybe there is no hope. Maybe this is as good as it gets. Maybe there's nothing better. You might be sitting here right now and thinking, I might be at my peak. And it all goes downhill from there. Maybe it only gets worse from here. I want to ask the question this morning. For the children of God, as we talked about last week, children of God that have eternal security and assurance, children of God that we learned about in Romans 8, verses 12 through 17, that have been adopted into the family of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, as children, what gives us, as the hymn says, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow? 
Great, you might be saying, there is a God and he exists in the heavens and this God has adopted me as a child, but I'm stuck here in the current circumstances of my life with the present circumstances and the present sufferings of this world. So the question I want to ask this morning and answer this morning is this, how do the children of God, with all of their rights and privileges, how do the children of God endure? How do the children of God endure in the midst of such brokenness and in the midst of a fallen world? How do the children of God endure with joy and confidence and gratitude that is not based on our circumstances? Because if your joy and your gratitude and your confidence is based on your current circumstances, all of those things I mentioned will always be elusive and never be realized. They'll always be something that we strive to attain but can never truly experience in this life. So I answer the simple question, how do the children of God endure? Paul outlines for us in this passage three things that allow the children of God to endure regardless of what this life might bring, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of present suffering. The first thing that Paul wants to point out to us by which the children of God will endure in this life. The first thing is a future glory. There is a future glory that awaits the children of God and allows the children of God to endure regardless of the sufferings, regardless of the circumstances. In verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that awaits the children of God. What Paul is doing here is he's doing a simple mathematic equation here. He's saying, I want you to take the present suffering. I want you to take your current circumstances. And I want you to weigh it against the future glory. And when you do that, the future glory will far exceed and far outweigh any current and present suffering that you might be experiencing right here in this life. I want you to consider it that it's not even comparable when you put the two against each other, our current circumstances versus the future glory that awaits the children of God. When you do it that way and you put the two against each other, the future glory far outweighs. Do the math. What's of greater worth? The future glory outweighs the present glory and worth and value every single time. And then what Paul begins to do in verses 19 through 23, so inspired by the future glory that awaits, so inspired by the future glory that outweighs any present suffering for the children of God, in verses 19 through 23, he begins to spell out this future glory that awaits the children of God. But he does something unique here and profound. Before he gets specifically to the children of God, in verses 19 through 21, he speaks of another type of longing in future glory. You see, in the verses that we just read here, there's a lot of groaning and crying going on. But there's two objects that are groaning. There's two objects that are crying out for the re real reality of this future glory to be made manifest. And in verses 19 through 21, Paul does something so profound he talks about the groaning 
of the current creation. And what Paul does here in 19 through 21 is he personifies nature and creation. You see, what Paul is doing here in verse 19, for instance, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation, for the revealing of the Son of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. When? In Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates the heavens and the earth and the creation is good. But then what happens in Genesis chapter 3? The fall of humanity and sin and death and darkness enter into the world. And God said he pronounces a curse not only upon humanity, but he pronounces a curse upon what? The very nature, the very created order. And what Paul is saying here in verses 19 through 21 is that up until this point, the entire created order, the entire created world is longing for restoration and redemption. The heavens and the earth, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, the trees and the rocks and the mountains are crying out for redemption and restoration. And this is the very promise of God that even creation is longing for that day of future glory. That creation, he says, Paul, is groaning out. And that's why we believe in being a gospel-centered, culture-shaping church. You see, it has always been the calling of the church to not only be declarers of the Great Commission and the gospel, but those that would fulfill the cultural mandate on earth as it is in heaven through the work of his church. You see, the whole reason that God does not save us and then just take us up to heaven is he says, I want you to stay here because I have a greater mission than just your soul, than just saving you. I have a mission to redeem the entire cosmos, that one day the children of God will see the manifestation of the promise of Jesus Christ when he says in Revelation 21, behold, I am making what? All things new. That is why as a church we are called to build the city of God in the midst of the city of man. The reason God just does not take us up to heaven, oh how some of you I know wish God would just take you up to heaven he says, no, I'm saving you to, sit, to leave you here, to be salt, to be light, to be the very agents of the kingdom of God so that you would understand that God is on a mission to use his church to bring about full restoration and full redemption here on earth. And so the earth here, the creation The created order is longing for that day, it says, with eager longing, eagerly eagerly expecting that day, like a little puppy sitting at the door waiting for his master to open the door so he can run out and enjoy the outside world. The creation is waiting for that day so that when the sons of God, the children of God, experience redemption, the creation will take part in that redemption as well. The whole heavens and the earth one day will be redeemed. But in verse 23, not only is the creation a longing for this future glory with groans, it says, but in verse 23, Paul says, and we ourselves, not only the creation is longing for that day where the future glory will be fully revealed, but it says in verse 23, the sons of God, the children of God are waiting for that day. And Paul says, The children who have the first fruits of the Spirit. What in the world is the first fruits of the Spirit? What Paul is saying here is the children of God here on earth, 
that when they are saved are the first fruits of the Spirit, that they taste the first fruits, but they don't taste it and experience it completely. Paul is likening the children of God here on earth to like a miner who, who has a part of the inheritance, a miner who has maybe seen the inheritance of his parents or of his father, but has not received the full inheritance because they have not reached full adulthood yet. And so Paul says the children of God here on earth are like a miner who is waiting with eager expectation that they've, they've tasted the blessing, they've seen a portion of the blessing, but they know one day that the best is yet to come and that this is what sustains the children of God here on earth. That what we have tasted in salvation through Jesus Christ is just a, what the hymn writer says, a foretaste of glory divine. That if you are in Christ this morning, you've only seen a glimpse of the future. You've only tasted the joys and the wonder of the salvation of Jesus Christ. The reason we can endure even on our worst day is that we know that we only have in part a portion, a little sliver of our inheritance. The full blessing awaits the children of God. This is the promise that one day not only the creation will be renewed and restored, but our entire bodies will be restored and resurrected and redeemed. And as painful as this present reality might be, the future glory is without comparison. A promise of restored creation, of restored bodies, of restored souls. I love what the great apologist, philosopher, and author C.S. Lewis said about our current state as children of God. C.S. Lewis said, if we, got, if we let God, he will make the feeblest and filthy of, of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that's what we are in for and nothing less. The world is hard. The life is hard. It's no surprise to anyone in this room, but one day for the children of God, this is the promise and it is guaranteed that all of the brokenness and all of the tears and all of the disappointments and all of the disease and all of the cancer and all of the death and all of the unbroken relation, all the broken relationships and unmet expectations, all of them will be undone far as the curse is found. Doesn't compare to what is coming, the future glory for the children of God. The second thing that Paul points out here in this passage is that the children of God not only endure by the promise of a future glory, but through a hope that transforms. Paul doesn't want this expectation of a future glory to remain just a, a expectation. He wants the expectation to translate eventually into a real, solid hope, a hope that transforms in verse 24 and 25, Paul talks about this hope. He says, for in this hope, we're saved. 
It's a hope that we cannot see in part, but Paul wants the children of God to have a hope in their complete salvation, that the work that God began in your life, God will one day finish it, that God is not only the author of your salvation, but he's the finisher of your salvation. And this is what we have hope in. And Paul wants to make sure that this eager expectation of a future glory that translates into a hope in our full salvation as children of God, he wants that hope to transform your life today. You see, how you behave and how you live in life is dictated by what you think of the future. If there is no hope for tomorrow, it will immediately affect how you live today. And let me say something very frank this morning. You might be here this morning and you do not believe in God. But let me tell you this. If you are here today and you do not believe in God, do not for one second think about the future. If you do not believe in God this morning, do not think about tomorrow. Because for the person that does not believe in God, to think about the future is a waste of time. Because tomorrow brings no hope, bring, tomorrow brings no glorious future, there is no reunion, there is no redemption, there is no hope. So if you do not believe in God this morning, stop thinking about tomorrow, because tomorrow will bring you nothing but despair. But for the person that does believe in God this morning, and for the children of God, all you can do is think about tomorrow. Because it's your bright future and your hope for tomorrow that dictates and transforms the way you live today. It's the only thing, the hope that we have tomorrow, the hope that there is a longing, that there is a God and who is building a heavenly city that all those that trust in his son through faith will belong to forever and ever. And the promise is this for those that belong to the city of God one day. He will wipe every tear from your eyes. There is a future glory that awaits the children of God. There is a hope that transforms, a hope for tomorrow that transforms the way that you live today. And then lastly, if that wasn't enough, Paul says God not only provides a glorious future to allow us to endure today, Paul says that God not only gives us a, a hope that transforms the way we live today, but Paul says lastly in verses 26 and 27, Paul says that God sends us a what? A helper in our weakness. In verse 26 and 27, Paul says that God has sent a help who is the helper in our weakness. It is the very person of the third, it is the third person of the Trinity of God. It is the very spirit of the living God. And this is what is profound. Paul says that God sends us a helper. How do the children of God endure? How do we endure the weaknesses of this life and of this world? Through the spirit of the living God. But this is so profound, and please listen to me and do not miss this. What does this assume for the children of God? That there will be weakness. Notice that Paul does not say, and oh, how I wish he would, that when you become a child of God, the Spirit comes down and removes all weakness. When you become a child of God, the Spirit of God comes down and removes all suffering and all brokenness and all pain. No. What Paul is saying here is profound. 
He's assuming the children of God will experience weakness in this life. You see, the promise for the children of God is not the removal of weakness. It's in the midst of the weakness there will be a helper. And it is God himself, the very person of the Trinity, the the Holy Spirit, that makes this promise that if you are a Christian this morning, a child of God, there will be tears. There will be suffering. The Christian will groan. They will groan over loss and weakness. But Jesus makes this promise to you as he made his disciples as they were panicking because he was about to leave. And he says this, it is going to be far more better. Even though I am leaving and going to be with my father, I am sending who? I am sending a helper that in the midst of your weakness will sustain you and help you. And Paul says here in verse 26, it is the Spirit of God that helps us in our weakness because what? We don't know how to be a dad. And we don't know how to be a mom. And we don't know how to be a spouse. And we don't know how to do this whole thing called life. And we're lost and confused. And it even says here in verses 26 and 27 that he will pray on our behalf. Isn't that amazing? What is prayer? It's asking God for help. And Paul says you can't even pray without asking for help and without needing help. You need help for asking for help. That's how much help you need. Isn't that amazing? And we have a helper. It is the spirit of the living God. You might be sitting here this morning and saying, I don't have a clue about how to dig myself out of this hole. I don't have a clue how to make something good out of the mess that I have made my life. For the children of God, the promise is there is a helper in the midst of the weakness. But it says here in verse 26 that the Spirit intercedes for us in our weakness with groanings. What? Groanings, it says in verse 26, that are too deep for words. It's as if Paul is saying, the way the Spirit intercedes for us before the Father, no mind and no heart could ever comprehend. And really what Paul is saying here, the original language for the intercession that the Spirit is making on behalf of the children of God, it means petition. The Spirit, picture this, the Spirit is standing before the throne room of God, before God the Father, and the Spirit is interceding through petitions. And when Paul adds the language in the original Greek, too deep for words, it means hyper-petitions, great petitions. So picture this, the Holy Spirit, in our moment of weakness, is not standing before God the Father saying, God the Father... For old time's sake. Would you help? Would you help your child? No. The original language is saying that the Holy Spirit is standing before God the Father demanding intercession. He is demanding, God the Father, you help your child. Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit is making petitions with hyper-intercessions, demanding God the Father You help your son. You help your daughter. But the question remains, what right, on what basis does the Spirit of God have the right, and on what basis does the Spirit of God make that type of petition and intercession before God the Father? 
On what basis? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says this, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to empathize with our weakness. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. You see, the good news for us this morning and the only right that the Holy Spirit has to make this type of intercession and this type of petition is on the basis of the one and only Jesus Christ, the high priest who not only got us through our weakness, but did what? Came down and took on our weakness. The reason the author of Hebrews is able to say that he is the high priest who's able to empathize is he because Jesus is the one who took on our weakness on our behalf. Jesus is the one who took on our weakness and took on our shame and took on our suffering and took on our brokenness. And so when the Spirit of the living God stands before God the Father, he says, on the basis of your Son and the work of your Son, he took on the weakness and the brokenness and the sin and the shame and the guilt of your children. Therefore, God the Father, you help. You help your children in weakness. You see, brothers and sisters, the only reason that we can endure as children of God is because the perfect child of God endured the weakness for us. Jesus is the very one who it is written has fought the fight perfectly and finished the race perfectly so that we as children of God might fight the fight and finish the race. You see, Jesus is the one and the only one who can rightfully claim victory. But here is the amazing good news of Jesus Christ. For all those that place their faith and trust in him, Jesus' victory becomes your victory. His endurance of weakness and suffering and shame becomes your endurance of weakness and suffering and shame as well. This is the good news that is declared to you this morning. But it's also the good news that sends out an invitation to you right where you're at. I know there's a lot of brokenness and a lot of hurting in this room this morning. And a lot of us try to find a hundred different ways in which we can somehow solve the problems of brokenness and hurt in our lives. For some of us, we have tried our entire lives to try to manufacture a future for our lives that would be glorious and worthwhile, only to find yourself here this morning at a dead end. And I would invite you this morning to do two simple things. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. And not only will you be saved, this story of a glorious future can become your story today. A story of incredible future and glory. No more death. No more suffering. No more crying. Elie Wiesel was the famous Jewish poet who survived the Holocaust at Auschwitz. And he wrote this, Elie Wiesel, Elie Wiesel died an atheist, but he said this. He said there was nothing more moving at Auschwitz than watching the Christians 
marching to the gas chambers singing the hymns of their faith. Nothing more moving than watching the Christians marching to the gas chambers singing the hymns of their faith. O oh, children of God, what a glorious future we have. The glorious future for the children of God is not what is in dispute this morning. The only thing in dispute this morning is this your future. Can you claim that this is your future? That Jesus' victory is my victory. That Jesus' enduring weakness and suffering and shame is my story of enduring suffering, weakness, and shame, even by way of the cross. You want strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow? Then run to Jesus. Run to Jesus today.